Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Welcome to Closing Bell. I'm Sarah Eisen in today for Scott Wapner, live from the New York Stock Exchange. This make or break hour begins with the S&P 500 on track for its seventh straight week of gains. Here's your scorecard with 60 minutes to go in regulation. Tech and discretionary, holding on to the green while utilities and real estate are the worst performing sectors right now. Boeing is the top Dow stock after a positive analyst call over at Bank of America. And the Dow is slightly lower in this final hour. We will look at whether the Dow can turn things around maybe even notch another record close. And that brings us to our talk of the tape, whether this Fed rally has any juice left. For that, we turn to Lauren Goodwin of New York Life Investments. She joins me here at Post 9. Lauren, does it? We've had a nice rally. We're up another 2.7% on the S&P just this week. What now? I think this is a Fed relief rally that the market's been waiting for for 18 months, and I think it has legs. Now, my uh, economic view is a little bit less constructive than that, and so I'm worried that where we are in this moment of Goldilocks is just that, a stop on the train towards a more difficult economic situation. But for the next several weeks, I don't see any opportunity for the data to knock the market off of this track. So... If the data is coming in good, and it is, it's been pretty benign, even the fourth quarter GDP estimates are going up, why are you worried about the outlook, the economic outlook? Well, the fourth quarter GDP estimates are where we are right now, and the the market reflects that, which is that things have been going well, there's been no sign of recession over the course of this year, but that's been in part because of liquidity surprises that have come in over the course of the year, uh, including liquidity from the consumer. As we turn the calendar in the new year, I see more headwinds, mostly from the lagged impact of Fed rate hikes over the course of the year, and so that's an environment where, again, for the next few weeks, we probably see a broad range of risk assets continuing to perform well, I think we should use that opportunity to rebalance into sectors that might be more durable in the face of what is continued uncertainty for investors. Are you, you're saying recession next year? Yeah. Is that so, so you use the opportunity to what, get more defensive? A little bit. I think there's a, a range of opportunities that, that uh, take advantage of the cyclical environment we're seeing, which includes more defensive sectors and equity. Um, it includes adding duration as a result of what we've been seeing lately. But there are also some structural themes that have come up over the course of the past year, artificial intelligence, digital infrastructure, that we think are likely to be more resilient over the course of the year that investors can take advantage of. It's just well. hard to see right now when jobless claims are, what, a little bit above 200,000. That, that's not a lagging indicator. It, there's very little stress in this labor market. So why are you more pessimistic about the economic outlook than, than most? When it comes to what we're seeing in the labor market, While this economic cycle is different in a lot of ways, what we do expect to happen consistent with past economic cycles is that the labor market is strong really until we're already in recession. Nine out of the last 10 recessions, we've seen employment improve, even accelerate, heading into a slowdown. And so, again, employment tells us where we are now, and that is absolutely not in recession. I wouldn't expect the market to react to negative economic news until unemployment or earnings start to tick lower. For me, that that number on the uh, unemployment claims rate is about 275. So to your point, nowhere near there yet. Yeah, so is the, is the disconnect that you're seeing 
with the earnings expectations for 2024 if the economy turns south? A couple of things. First, yes, with respect to earnings, no matter which way we slice it, expectations for 2024 look optimistic. While things are looking really nice right now, to me, there's not as many opportunities for clear upside from the earnings environment. And so we're concerned that those expectations are a bit too high. I guess just on the flip side, if we do face a bigger downturn, as you expect, then doesn't the Fed just cut more? And won't the market cheer that on? I think it's, 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 a, it's a good point, but we're getting that cheer right now. Christmas cheer, holiday cheer, Fed cheer. Where the story does start to change is when the Fed is cutting for not benign reasons, but slowdown reasons. Then the market is likely to, to respond to recession risk. Let's bring J- Jordan Jackson into the conversation. He's from J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Also joins us here at Post 9, a treat. You're usually in Washington. Are you as pessimistic about the, the economic outlook? As Lauren is? You know, from a market standpoint, um, it's kind of hard to be bearish right now. Uh, in fact, the bulls are out. I think there was a bull on the New Jersey Transit yesterday morning. <laughs> That's so wild. The- I thought people were joking about it because of the market. <laughs> or no. it was AI, maybe. I, I had no idea. Apparently, uh, it was real. Yep. So, so, so the bulls are out. And again, I think a lot of it has, is, is thanks to the Fed. My, the biggest surprise for me was I had come into Wednesday's meeting with the assumption that Chairman Powell was going to push back on the notion of rate cuts. But he actually leaned into the idea that the Fed can start to cut rates uh, next year, even if inflation maybe doesn't have a 2.0 handle on it. And I think that was really powerful in kind of um, this Fed-induced rally that Lauren has highlighted. You know, markets are finally getting uh, excited about it. So you've got bonds rallying, you've got equities rallying. Um, Liquidity is going to be light through the end of the year. November retail sales was pretty strong. Inflation seems to be coming down faster than the Fed would like. So all these things that the markets are cheering on, I think they're cheering on for, for, for good reason. That's the Goldilocks, soft That's landing, the immaculate, immaculate disinflation, Goldilocks yes. scenario playing out. So I, it's kind of hard to be, to be bearish in the short term. You know, Fed Chair Powell did lean into cuts two days ago. But then this morning on Squawk Box, John Williams, president of the New York Fed, sounded pretty different. Here's what he said. We aren't really talking about rate cuts right now. We're very focused on the, the question in front of us, which, as Chair Powell said, the question is, have we gotten monetary policy to a sufficiently restrictive uh, stance in order to, to ensure that inflation comes back down to 2%? That's the question in front of us. That's what we've been really thinking about for the past five months, and I think we'll be continuing to think about for some time. So whether he was trying to walk back the, the statement or just injecting his own opinion that maybe there's too much emphasis on the cuts, I do wonder if we're at sort of Jordan peak cut optimism right now and whether that's already baked in. Because you both expect the rally to still continue, but, you know, we're pricing in now 150 basis points of cuts next year. Yeah, six cuts is, is, is pretty <laughs> aggressive. Um, and so I think it, it's really a timing issue, I, I think, between Powell's comments and Williams' comments. The timing is that... Um, Williams suggests that rates can remain higher for longer. If you look at the dot plot, there are no members to anticipate any more rate hikes over this cycle. So even the most hawkish member does anticipate that this is the highest that we're going to get on Fed funds. It's really a question about when they're going to start cutting and to the degree that they have to cut. Now, what's, what's been interesting, and when you look at volatility, both across interest rate markets as well as equity markets, again, I was coming into the Wednesday meeting with the anticipation that 
maybe equity vol has the scope to catch up to interest rate volatility. But now that the Fed has solidified that they're on hold, maybe, maybe interest rate vol can catch down to the very low levels of equity vol. So um, it all ties back to this uh, kind of hard to be, to be bearish, at least tactically. And to that point, I mean, we have seen the rally broaden out this week. The small caps have been a huge story and a big comeback story up 5.4% on the week. So Lauren, I get it in the next year, you don't want to be exposed to the to that kind of area. But do you think there's some catching up from left behind groups? I agree with Jordan that this this rally is broad and it's risk on. And I think that in the near term, yes, there's room for it to continue and room to be optimistic. The question for investors is how tactical you can be. When it comes to Fed speak, I do expect that we'll see a pattern that frankly we've seen all year, which is that the Fed and Chair Powell work pretty hard within the construct of the meeting not to surprise markets. And then everybody's out talking the tape, trying to say, hey, inflation's still pretty high. We're we're not thinking about rate cuts just yet. In the new year, what matters for me about rate cuts is why the Fed's doing it. If we're getting six cuts next year, like the market suggests, from my perspective, that's because we're Something's hitting reces recession. Yeah, I mean, the thinking now is that they will be cutting next year because inflation is heading all the way back down to 2%, their target, and they feel more confident bringing policy back to, to sort of normal levels so they don't wreck the job market, which is still good, and the economy which is still good. Right. And that's what, what I've been thinking about a lot with respect to this argument is that, A, it's economically and mathematically entirely correct. As inflation moves lower, you should be able to adjust the policy rate just to keep real rates neutral. They're not going up. And right. they are going to still go up. But if, 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 they don't. But if the Fed is, is uh, cutting rates in March or May, as the, as the market seems to think it might, and nothing is going wrong, then I expect we'll continue to see financial market conditions loosen. And that's an environment where confidence ticks higher, et cetera. It's hard for me to see that Goldilocks then not resulting in an overheating, a reheating of the economy. So it's something There's that we're, it's a, exactly, it's a, it's a really delicate balance that they're playing in. So Jordan Lawrence using the opportunity, the strength to rebalance, shift into more defensive places where she wants to be in a weaker environment. What about you? What's the strategy around this this year-end rally, and does it continue? Sure. So I think, uh, and I agree with a lot of Lauren points. Those tail risks uh, in the broader economy are certainly there. That risk of potentially. I'm over trying to get you guys to disagree. Not <laughs> <a disagreement. laughs> um, uh, but, but again, I think tactically, I'm, I'm bullish in the short term. I think we'll get a bit of wobbles in the market in the first quarter, right? We know analysts tend to overestimate calendar year earnings coming into the year by a degree about five to eight percentage points. So there could be that kind of over optimism amongst analysts uh, expectations moving into 2024. But we have to remind ourselves that so far year to date, earnings expectations for 2024 have come down by about three percent. Uh, companies have done uh, a, a heroic job, I'd argue, in protecting margins. And I think that sets us up for a margin stabilizing over the course of 2024. The big risk is going to be revenues, right? With, with inflation coming down, nominal GDP taking, taking a step down, nominal GDP growth is also going to take a step down. But so, so probably volatility picking up a little bit uh, in equities in the first quarter of next year. But on the back of the Fed, potentially cutting rates more aggressively than inflation coming down, now the real policy rates becomes more attractive, comes down, and that can allow markets to, to, to rally. Now, of course, next year's an election year. That's going to add a whole nother layer of, of, 
uh, headlines and market uncertainty, especially moving towards the end of the year. Uh, but we know typically after uh, that election result comes through, markets tend to rally towards the backup of the year. So I'm calling for actually a, 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 a low double-digit return year coming from the stock market next year. And what, what sectors lead? So I think growth actually leads the charge. Um, and that's going to be valuation driven. We're seeing that in the market today. I think that dynamic. So this continues. month has been a preview. Basically. This month has re really been a preview. I now think for the first half of 2024. The second half, though, you're going to want to be balanced, right? Assuming the Fed's not going to go back down to zero. We've looked at the data historically going back to 1980. Uh, when you look at prison with interest rates are between the 10 year, between three and four percent. The annualized return on value and growth are equal at about five percentage points. So you, you, I think, growth, again, growth is going to yeah. lead the charge given that direction of rates are going to be lower, valuation-driven rally and growth. But then you're going to want to be well-balanced across both value and growth. Finally, to both of you, you know, this is the year where cash was king. All that money flowed into money market funds. They were chasing those short-term yields with cash. For the first time in eight weeks, Bank of America fund flows tracked outflows of cash. I wonder if you think that that continues, what you would tell people to do if they're sitting on the, what, trillions of dollars now in money market funds. Time to take it out. I think the movement in bonds is what's spurring investors to move money away from cash. And as we look to the new year, though I see economic risk potentially rising, which may make you more cautious in an asset allocation, I think that remaining over-allocated to cash, especially for the average investor, is really tricky. Because even after a market downturn, when you start to see the market rebounding, it's usually when the economy feels the worst. And so rebalancing in that environment is just really tricky to actually pull off. Typically, getting back into the market is best two to three months before a Fed pauses. You get the uptick that we've seen in the last couple of months. The best time other than that is right now. Right. And so I do expect that trend will continue. Into bonds because you... You want some protection? In, into a balanced portfolio, but I think that increasingly in 2024, that favors bonds. That has to do with the quality that we see across bonds, especially in traditionally less favored sectors like high yield as the, as, as the economy slows. And it's because yields are, are high. Do you guys expect this to be a tailwind for the equity market, money coming out of money market funds? I think it at least provides a bit of a floor yeah. on just how much further stock prices can fall. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was looking at the data earlier today. If we have the soft lending play out, maybe we can go back to, to 94, right? Um, the stock market returns between 1995 and 1999, looking at the price on the S&P 500, on average, uh, the stock market was up 26% per year, per annum, between 1995 and 1999. If you go back to the global financial crisis, outside of negative return years, in every year, maybe 2011 was a bit of a wild card, the stock market has been up double digits. And so it's actually really hard to have a single digit return year in the stock market unless you're, unless you're negative. Um, and so that's why I think coming well, out of it- Lauren gets a recession. Uh, maybe unless, but then, Markets can whiplash, right? You can get that correction in the first half of 2024, and then markets go off to the races in the back half of the year, recouping those losses. And so I think I agree, you know, investors should remain well balanced. I think a 60-40 is probably where you want to be, at least over the, 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 the near term. Um, and then I'd probably start to tilt overweight stocks once the Fed starts cutting rates. Yeah, certainly working out right now.
Thank you, guys. Really good discussion uh, to wrap up the week, Lauren and Jordan. We'll send it now over to Christina Partzinevelis for a look at the biggest names here moving into the close. Christina. You know, I want to start with DocuSign because they're surging late in the day on a report that the e-signature company is working with advisors to explore sales. So the Wall Street Journal reports that talks are in early stages and may not actually lead to a deal. The stock, though, had a market cap of roughly $11 billion before these headlines emerged. So any transaction would likely be a very big one. Shares up almost 12% now. Lennar under pressure despite beating expectations for earnings and revenue, but gross home sales margin or gross home sales margin fell from the prior year and came in below the company's forecast. While that's weighing on the stock this afternoon, Lennar was still able to notch an all-time high earlier in the session. Those shares, though, down about 3.5% right now. And Tractor Supply is also in the red after Bank of America downgraded the outdoor-focused retailer to underperform. Analysts say, quote, fewer backyard chickens, more back-to-office, noting that the big boom in gardening, farming, and outdoor recreation uh, that the pandemic-fueled is starting to pull back. Price target goes from 207, uh, from 207 to 171, shares off by 3% chickens. I wish I had chickens. I know someone who during the pandemic got chickens. I do as well. And then yep. one of hers like flew away or disappeared. She got eggs though. My, my friend too was um, attacked by another animal. Anyway. Whoa. It, it, it rings true. <laughs> Thank you, Christina. Thanks. Christina Partinevelis. We're just getting started here. Up next, trading consumer strength, strong data and positive analyst chatter dominating the retail space this week. An analyst will give us his top picks for 2024 right after a break. We are live from the New York Stock Exchange. Dow's down 45 points. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Bank of America out with a bullish note on consumer spending this week, saying November showed, quote, a good start to holiday spending. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen speaking along the same lines when I spoke with her on Squawk on the Street earlier this week. Here's what she had to say about the consumer. Consumer spending we have seen remains solid. Um, consumers built up a buffer stock of saving and wealth during the pandemic. Um, they've been spending that down gradually. Here to discuss which retail stocks could benefit the most is Oppenheimer's Brian Nagel. Brian, it's good to see you. It really hasn't been the best year for retail and, and consumer names, unless you're like in the cruise industry or Amazon or a home builder, some of them are actually down year to date. So what do you do with these retail stocks? Well, good afternoon, Sarah. So look, I mean, I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, it, it's been a very, very tough backdrop for consumer stocks. Now, I think the important point there is the stocks. 
for the companies, and I agree with uh, uh, Jenna Yellen's comments. I mean, spending has held up remarkably well. Okay, and that and that's you know, so from a fundamental standpoint, the fundamentals have been much better, I think, than the stocks. Now, the Fed announcement this week to me is pivotal. You know, I think the, the idea that the, the rates have likely topped out and are moving lower. I think it sets the stage very well for more discretion, consumer or discretionary stocks as we look into 2024. And so essentially, in my mind, you know, these, these stocks will begin to catch up or track better solid underlying fundamentals that these companies that we've seen for a while now. Do you want to sort through some of the ones that have had the toughest go this year? A Foot Locker, I'm just looking, Tapestry, Best Buy, Bath & Body Works, Tractor Supply, they're all down for the year. Yeah, so those a few of those names you mentioned I don't cover. Uh, like Best Buy, I do cover. I would stay away from there. I mean, the way I would play this, okay, as I, as I look at what's happening now and then into 2024, you know, you know more message to my to our, my message to our clients has been: look, the rate sensitive names. You know, it's a Home Depot and Lowe's on the home improvement side. I mean, the idea that rates are likely moving lower—that's a big positive for home improvement retail. And then another names I talk about a lot on your show and is, is athleisure. You know, so names yes. like Nike and Lululemon. I mean, Lululemon, we've seen fantastic results out of. You know, that stock's doing well. Nike's lag. Now, we're going to get a report from Nike next week. I think the report itself will be generally in line. But again, if we look beyond that report, you know, with the backdrop of a still very solid consumer, lower rates, I think that's when that stock starts to work even more. Do you worry at all about revenue growth in a time where apparel and footwear prices are either disinflating or deflating? Because companies benefited from those high, higher prices, didn't they? Absolutely. And so, the, you know, the key there is to really understand where elasticity of demand is. You know, so there's categories like the auto parts retailers. Now, my team and I downgraded the auto parts retailers a while ago, largely on that concept. Now, AutoZone, O'Reilly, extraordinarily well-run companies, but there's not much elasticity of demand. So they benefited from inflation. As inflation wanes, that means sales growth or revenue growth will be slower. But if you look at companies like Nike, again, I'm going to keep on highlighting Nike, you know, there's more of an elasticity of demand. I don't see Nike dropping prices, okay, to be clear. I mean, Nike's done a very good job on the innovation side. But as inflationary pressures broadly subside, you know, as the consumer feels better, you know, from an inflationary standpoint, you could very much see better improved unit demand for a Nike you know, so that that's that, that that's essentially how. But again, the one the, the companies you want to be careful of are those that are primarily driving sales growth through higher prices. And again, for my coverage universe, yeah. would hire the auto hire highlight the auto parts retailers. So, so since you were zeroing in on Nike, let, let's talk about it. Reports earnings on Thursday, it has lagged. I think it's up like three percent this year, but it's still valued at thirty-two times next year's earnings. Where's Lulu? In, in the 30s somewhere. Why do you think, first of all, Nike's been punished and what do you think it's worth? Yeah, so look, Nike, I mean, Nike's been, so a 32 multiple's not low, right? I mean, you do look across right. the market. That was kind of the point. But for Nike, it is. Okay, I mean, this, this is Nike, this is a, one of the most dominant global brands on the planet. Okay, and historically, we've seen that multiple significantly higher than 32 times. So when I think about where that stock should be priced, I look back at history, particularly in environments where rates are lower. That's when Nike tends to get a higher multiple. Now, fundamentally, this has been a classic wall of worry type stock. Okay, so as I talk to investors out there, you know, there's been worries about China. There's been worries about demand growth within the United States. There's been worries about inventory. And one by one, Nike, with its very solid fundamentals, has essentially tackled those type of those type of worries. And again, as we look into 24, I think those concerns that have weighed upon the stock further abate. You know, the inventories are now clean. 
I think we're still seeing solid demand in the United States. I think that's going to get better as Nike ships more product to its wholesale partners. And everything we're hearing, you know, despite the, the worries of some type of economic malaise in China, you know, what we hear from, from Nike and then, frankly, from Lululemon as well is that demand for these products is quite good. But they've all sounded a little bit cautious. I mean, even Lulu, which never just never sounds cautious. Remember, when they came out, they, they warned on the holiday season, at least, that they were aware of what's happening with the overall environment and numbers missed estimates. Given everything you've heard from all the retail companies you cover, you expect the consumer to, to hang in there next year, continue to show growth, even if we are seeing softness in the broader economy? I do. I look, I, I think, I mean, I, I think consumer spending has stayed solid and I expect it to remain solid. I mean, the key, and this is not the most insightful of comments, is the job market. I mean, mo most consumer spending is driven by jobs. If consumers have jobs, they feel comfortable in that job. If they, they, they think that, you know, there's a, if they had to leave a job, they could find another job. That's what drives most spending decisions. And again, despite all the concerns about, you know, the U.S. economy, the global economy, the macro backdrop, the jobs market within the United States has remained very resilient. And I think really think that's been the key driver to most spending. I, you know, from my standpoint, again, being a fundamental analyst, I think that hold that that holds in. Yeah, I mean, some people say the excess savings though are running, are running out. Janet Yellen said they're being spent gradually down. There's that. There's the student loan payment resumptions. There's, you know, fewer SNAP benefits. You can make arguments on both sides, but I guess it, jobs is key. That's exactly right. All those factors play a piece. The jo jobs is the most important for general consumer spending. Got it. Thank you, Brian. Brian Nagel. Thank you. Appreciate it nice from Oppenheimer. Up next, betting on a box office boom. The strike may have hit Hollywood hard, but now hopes are high for a strong holiday season. We're going to break down the stocks that could benefit the most when closing bell comes right back. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back. Hollywood strikes weighing on the film industry this year, but now hopes are high for a strong holiday season and beyond. Julia Borson here with more. Julia. Sarah, Warner Brothers' Wonka movie grows $3.5 million from Thursday night previews. That puts it on track to gross as much as $40 million this weekend after opening with $43 million internationally. And Warner Brothers, whose stock is up about 7% this week, has the most on the line this holiday season with two other big-budget films, an Aquaman sequel as well as the Color Purple musical coming out um, over the holidays. So the question is whether those franchises, along with Oscar bait and family films can boost the year's box office across the $9 billion milestone. Now, year to date, this year's box office is $2 billion below 2019 levels, according to Comscore. Now, after a mixed year for theater chain stocks, 
J.P. Morgan is predicting that next year the box office will decline. This despite a range of big sequels and franchise films set to be released, including sequels to Dune, Deadpool, Transformers and Lord of the Rings. There's even a Mean Girls movie coming out. Now, J.P. Morgan forecasts, though, that the 2025 box office will rebound thanks to a new Mission Impossible movie and some more Marvel movies. But Comscore's Paul DeGarabinian warns us that franchises are no longer safe havens for studios. Sarah? What happened to AMC stock? Got hit harder than the others. Is that just like the correction from the meme trade? Yes, it's a meme stock. AMC sort of trades separately from the other theater stocks. If you look at Cinemark and IMAX, they tend to reflect more what's going on with the movie industry. AMC was really bolstered by that meme stock moment. Um, You see it's come down quite a bit. Yeah, doing equity offerings and everything. Julia, thank you. Up next, charting the rally. Why one top technician is betting on some serious upside for 2024. He'll make his case and break down the key levels to watch right after this break. Closing bell, we'll be right back. Welcome back. The major averages are set to close out seventh week of gains here. That's the longest weekly win streak for the S&P 500 since back in 2017. Our next guest says a record high could be in the cards for 2024. Let's bring in John Kolovos. He's head of technical strategy at Macro Risk advisors. John, what do the technicals tell you about how much more legs this rally has? Yeah, thanks for having me, Sarah. Uh, look, listen, we take a step back and we take a look at the, the trend of the S&P 500 going back to 2009. There is a series of higher highs and higher lows in place here. And when I do my, my forecasting, my trend work, I think the S&P can get to about as high as you know 5280 on the upside. Uh, but really, the technical fair value, as I call it, is somewhere closer to around 5,000. So I think we can continue to push up higher on a trend basis to about that 5,000 area. Um, and also, the other way to kind of think about how we can keep pushing up higher would be with, with breath. We've had significant breath thrusts as of late, a good spike in, in, in new highs, good volume to the upside, and also market cycles are favorable into next year. Do bonds have to keep rallying for all that to happen? Yeah, so bonds would be a huge part to all of this. Uh, Basically, this inverse relationship between stocks and interest rates has to keep, right? So lower rates, higher stocks. What typically happens going into a recession or a recessionary bear is that the the correlation turns turns to similar, turns to the same. So then if stocks were to start following rates lower, and I do think rates go lower next year. I think they're going to consolidate tenure to about 325-ish or so. If stocks start following down, following them lower, then yeah, 5,000 may, may be hard to be, to be hit. Who is gonna lead this rally? Which sectors do you like? So my models are overweight industrials. I really like our industrials look. I'm still overweight uh, technology. Uh, there's parts of software that look really, really compelling. Yeah, I get it. Semis have been great, but there's some really great uh, base breakouts that are forming within the small mid cap area of technology. I like that quite a bit. Uh, what I would be uh, uh, avoiding uh, into next year, at least at this stage of the game, would be energy. Uh, I, while I am bullish longer term on oil, I just don't think it's done going lower. So I want to be uh, avoiding energy uh, for the time being. Same with healthcare. A lot of the equipment names there just aren't doing well. You'll find a few biotechs that are okay, but I would be avoiding them. So basically industrials and technology look, look really good. And then also parts of financials. Uh, X banks insurance look pretty strong. Capital markets look good. So those Why are the areas. Because we're, we're finally getting the, the curve steepening. That's good for banks. Yeah, to an extent. So what I look at it from a longer term perspective is these stocks are just getting off the ground. Sure, they're up a lot over the last couple of weeks, but they're 
barely above moving averages. Their, their 200 days aren't sloping higher. They're early stages. Not enough uh, repair has been done. Constructive, less bearish as they were, but they really just feel kind of counter-trendish to me. So the strength right now, and that's what I do in my process, I want to lean on long-term winners, and they tend to not be within banks right now. So you see lower yields, higher stocks. The, the third ingredient has been a weaker dollar. It's, it's down yeah. 1.5% this week, also helpful for risk appetite. Where do you think that goes? Yeah, I'm, I'm a dollar bear, been a dollar bear for a while. 95 is where I'm looking for on the DXY. Had a major structural peak uh, about two years ago there, and it's been progressing nicely. So, so long as those correlations hold in place, a dollar down to 95 would be pretty good. But I think on a short-term basis, though, what we should keep an eye on is uh, the, the emerging market currencies, like the peso and whatnot. Those are tied to risk assets. And they, the peso does look like it wants to keep working lower for the time being. But I think we're pretty close to a, a reversal higher shorter term. It's had a great year, Mexican peso, up like 12%. Oh, yeah. Thank you, John. Good to talk to you. John Colavos. Up next, we are tracking the biggest movers as we head into the close. Christina Partsinevola is standing by with that. Christina. Scholastic Book Fair is not doing as well in U.S. schools lately, and renewable energy names climbing higher. I'll have details on both those stories next. About 14 minutes till the closing bell. Let's get back to Christina Partsinevelis for a look at the key stocks to watch right now. Christina. Well, Scholastic is deep in the red this afternoon as the children's book publisher posts a sharp decline in revenue from last year. The company also cited a complex environment in U.S. schools and saw big drops in its book club revenues. Those shares are down over 11% right now. And some solar stocks are seeing more relief today as Jefferies initiates coverage of First Solar and Phase and Sunrun with buy ratings. Analysts see better risk-reward dynamics for companies with exposure to utility scale, strong backlogs, and balance sheets. The group has been hard hit this year because of rising rates, but optimism, of course, around the Fed's moves in the new year and overall stabilizing of rates has allowed some of these names to rebound in recent weeks. For example, you're seeing Sunrun on your screen right now. It's up about 60% just in the last month or so, but zoom out on the year, it's still lower. Up uh, almost uh, 2.5% today. Sarah? Yeah, first solar, top of the S&P right now, up 6%. Thank you, Christina. Thanks. Up next, Coinbase shares slipping. That stock down now 4% or so. We're going to break down what's weighing on the name. That and much more when we take you inside the market zone. Be right back. We are now in the closing bell market zone. Citigroup U.S. equity strategist Scott Croner is here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day. Plus, Kate Rooney with the latest on the ongoing struggle between the SEC and Coinbase. And Julia Borston on what's behind the sell-off in Roku shares today. Scott, let's start with you. It's fun to be back in the market zone with you. So <laughs> another more than 2% up week here for the S&P 500. The Fed certainly was the big deal and the big event. How much of a game changer was it when it comes to the outlook for stocks? Well, I think it clearly was a game changer. And and again, as we've been saying for a few weeks now, focus a little bit less on Fed funds, focus a little bit more on 10-year nominals. And so you see what's happened here in response to the perception that we're getting closer and closer to a Fed pivot. And so as 10-year nominals have come down below 4%, you really have kind of changed the landscape in terms of how investors are thinking about you know, both the macro picture, but then also the valuation picture for discounting future earnings. So, you know, the setups here are pretty constructive. I, uh, you, you might argue that we're running a little bit ahead of ourselves in terms of where valuations are gone, but certainly have to acknowledge that the trend in terms of getting to a closer to end of Fed uh, hike, hike cycle is 
rapidly approaching. Year-end target for you is 5,100 by the end of next year. Are, are you thinking of raising that? I know it's early to be, to be doing such things, but you said it was a game changer, what we got from the Fed. Yeah, so let's just put it in context. So our, our, our uh, 5,100 is essentially 245 in S&P earnings, which is well ahead of where sell-side consensus is uh, in terms of other strategists. And we're putting a 21 times multiple on that, which we get a lot of questions on. So I feel pretty good about that framework. What has to happen, quite honestly, for us to end up pushing that target higher is to go to our, let's call it more bull case, which is a more defined soft landing where you can actually get upside to your earnings projections and end of the year closer to 260, let's say, um, and, uh, and, and, and then talk about a, a more aggressive multiple. Again, it's a little premature to get there, Sarah, but, but yeah. that's the way we have to start thinking about it. But here's the thing. The market is so enthusiastic about rate cuts after this week that already you have Fed members out there walking back expectations in terms of March being premature. I expect a whole lot more of that kind of speak in the next few weeks. Is the market going to pull back and start to adjust well, the, the timing for the cuts? Yeah, let's I mean, our narrative, you know, uh, and I think this is a well is, is a good narrative is that look at, you know, we've had this great move. You don't get this type of move in the S&P without digesting it at some point. It is going to be you know, sort of news dependent on that. You know, we're expecting as you go into the Q4 reporting period, which is still let's call it a month away. We're probably going to see a downward revision bias to full year consensus numbers as companies are still expressing caution, right? So if you think about that in the context of a you know, Fed that's gonna you know, argue for, hey, look at premature to get too aggressive on, on, on rate cuts here, we do think you set up for a pullback, but we wanna be you know, very clear that into said pullback, we're looking to aggressively position and specifically broaden out uh, with a focus on the cyclical side of the market. Does that include small caps, which have had quite a banner week? Yeah, we've been arguing for, I don't know, a month or two now, Sarah, that, that when you think about the small mid-cap setup, the valuations here are, are, are attractive and, and everybody sort of has had a pretty good uh, perspective on that. But what we look at is that what you get with small mid as a, is a leveraged alternative to S&P equal weight or even S&P enhanced value. So what we think you get with small cap is a little bit more of a more aggressive play on an eventual Fed pivot and uh, risk on dynamic on the other side of recession fears. So if you expect the market to keep broadening out, what do you do if you have a lot of exposure to the Magnificent Seven, the mega cap tech stocks that have led this market all year long? You know, in talking to investors, I mean, one of the narratives that comes out here is that you have pretty outsized gains relative to benchmark weights. And so what we're arguing is that the S&P cannot move materially higher without that mega cap growth leadership participating, okay? But on the heels of this year's performance, it's not a huge leap to say, hey, can you look at, as we think about reducing weights down to a more comfortable benchmark level, where do we re-employ those funds? And that's where you we, we really begin to set the stage for a broadening. That and the opportunity, we think, with cash that's still on the sidelines, that thought it had time to move out the duration curve that is now sort of uh, you know, second-guessing itself. Really quickly, what's the biggest risk to your, to your forecast at this point for next year? I think it's going to be careful what you wish for, right? So what ends up happening with 
the potential Fed pivot in, in a weaker Fed funds perspective, hey, they're going to do that in response to macro concerns and maybe even micro concerns. So just because we're getting closer to this peaking Fed and the fall of the Fed narrative says we want to own equities, you have to be prepared that volatility is going to come with that. So that's essentially the, the, the argument would be be careful what you wish for. We're going to have to navigate some volatility next year. Be prepared and be prepared to, to buy into said pullbacks. Improvement as we speak here, Scott, just into the close. Thank you very much, Scott Croner, with the S&P and the Dow going positive here in the final moments of trade. Meanwhile, watching Coinbase shares, they're coming under pressure today. Kate Rooney has the details behind that move. Kate. Hey, Sarah. So the SEC today denying Coinbase's request for new crypto rules. They said the existing rules that govern things like stocks, ETFs, they work just fine when it comes to crypto. SEC chair Gary Gensler repeating a point that he has made before. He says existing laws and regulations already apply to the crypto securities market. Also said the SEC addresses crypto markets through rulemaking already. Emphasize that while crypto does see outsized fraud, for example, relative to its size, it's still a very small portion of the $110 trillion capital markets out there, and said that it's important that the commission maintain discretion to focus on whichever parts of the market they think need updated regulation. Coinbase's chief legal officer, Paul Graywall, I spoke to him earlier. He told me the company did plan to respond in court. They actually just did. They called it the SEC, the SEC's denial of this arbitrary and, and capricious in what they just filed. Today's news, though, hitting shares of Coinbase. You can also see it's hitting shares of Robinhood, which has lead heavily into crypto in recent years, down today more than 3%, both of those companies, Sarah. Back to Does you. it mean anything, Kate, for the, the big decision that the market is very much anticipating around the spot Bitcoin ETF and also very enthusiastic will pass this time? It does in the sense of you can just get the, the tone of Gary Gensler. I know you spoke to him recently as well. Yeah, he is not showed his hand at all when it comes to that ETF decision, pours more cold water on Coinbase's more specific sort of idiosyncratic legal battles that they're fighting. And these are, are very specific cases, not much to read into in terms of what it means for, for a Bitcoin ETF approval, other than Gary Gensler's repeated statement that this market needs to be regulated like uh, you know, any other traditional financial market, including you know, stocks and bonds. He thinks that these things are securities and also, again, call that fraud, which has been one of the big yeah. reasons why they have not approved a spot Bitcoin ETF, at least. Yeah, no, he did that yesterday in the interview as well. Thank you, Kate. Kate Rooney. Now back over to Julia Borston with a look at what is sending Roku shares lower right now, Julia. Well, Sarah, Roku shares have been plummeting after Moffat Nathanson downgraded the stock to sell, saying that the valuation is stretched relative to its top line risks that they see. You see shares are down nearly 7% right now. Now, Roku shares have been on a tear. The stock is still up 106% in the past 12 months and is up 26% in the past three months. Michael Nathanson, though, warning that Roku's revenue growth was fueled in part by massive price increases at streaming video on demand services. And they expect a sluggish streaming on streaming video on demand market, tough comparisons to this year, as well as increasing competition going forward. So after Roku's big gains in the past year, now 12 percent of analysts have a sell rating on the stock, 48 percent have a hold and 39 percent have a buy. Sarah? What's been going on with growth at the company? I, they've had a few good quarters, haven't they? 
They've had a good, few good quarters, but one of the issues coming up is that they're going to be lapping a lot of that. So the question is, the digital ad market, will it be re- robust? And so much of their business is fueled by these streaming services selling through Roku and really using Roku as the platform that they're based on. Um, and we've had some big quarters of that, but there might be a slowdown there as well. Got it. Roku shares under pressure, down 7%. Still a big winner this year, Julia Borston. Julia, thank you. Two minutes to go until the close. Take a look at where we are in the market right now. We've turned green across the board. The Dow spent a good chunk of the day in the red, but getting a boost here into the close. What's helping out today? Well, it looks like the biggest contributor to the Dow gain is Boeing, adding about 50 points. Salesforce, Microsoft, American Express, Home Depot also adding to the Dow's rally. Some of the stocks getting left behind today, McDonald's, UNH, it's the defensive groups. Goldman Sachs is lower, but has been a big winner this week as well. Look at the S&P 500. It's also positive, just barely, in these final moments of trade. It's tech that's been outperforming all day today. Information technology, communication services, consumer discretionary, and staples are all positive. Everybody else looks like is negative on the close. The Nasdaq up four-tenths of one percent, adding to the gains for the week. So now we're up almost three percent here to close out the week for the Nasdaq. The S&P up two and a half percent. The Dow up three percent on the week. And a reminder, if the Dow can close positive here at these levels, That will be another record high close for the Dow. The biggest winner of the week, though, is the Nasdaq 100, up more than 3%. You've got strength in places like Costco after reporting earnings, a beat on the top and bottom line, good membership numbers, good grocery business there. JD.com is having a nearly 5% up day. And then the Magnificent Seven, Microsoft, Amazon, NVIDIA, they're all working today. Meta making a move higher as well. That is certainly helping. The biggest story, though, of the week has been the Federal Reserve. First, we got the nine inflation number earlier in the week, CPI and PPI, and then a Fed that really leaned into that, pretty much signaling that they're done raising rates and talking about cutting rates. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com now. 